As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. New VanCaster take you into the weekend. The Vancouver Canucks rounding out their coaching staff earlier in the week, so we've got lots to chew on. Of course, the NHL now down to the Final Four. I'm sure we can touch on that. But before we get into anything, Tom, just want to thank the VIPs again. Uh, always fun to do those mailbag editions, uh, as we did on Wednesday, and lots of great questions, and uh, hopefully we're able to get some good answers out there for the people as well. 100%, and I've got to uh, quickly give a shout-out to Chris Devine. Chris Devine is the Chris D whose question I took exception to at the end of the mailbag <laughs> yesterday. So Chris D reaches out and says, I meant no disrespect. Legitimately didn't know your background, even though I've been a follower since day one. Just wanted to apologize. It came out wrong. But I think others might be interested, so it deserves some discussing. Um, cheers. Fair enough. Fair enough. And look, I was mostly just doing a bit. I, I didn't actually... I wasn't actually upset by any means. So let's do some stuff and then let's circle back. I want to answer Christie's question in a good faith. All right. You want to do that now or you want to do that at the no, let's circle later? Back. We'll circle back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's good because I we've got a few things that we have to circle 100%. back on. Uh, but let's get to this. I, I thought Wednesday was a really good day for the Vancouver Canucks. There haven't been nearly enough of them over the past bunch of years. But uh, aside from it wasn't a great day for Newell Brown, obviously. Um, and I've got all the time in the world for Newell. Like, think a, a ton of him as uh, a human being and a hockey coach. And I hope he lands on his feet. I, I'm sure he will. Uh, but a guy that just, you know, always had a smile on his face, always had uh, time to stop and say hi uh, at the rink or out on the streets when we were traveling with the hockey club, whatever. So uh, I, I wish Newell Brown all the best. But look, bringing back the same coaching staff wasn't going to cut it. Uh, they were last place in the Canadian division. It was a colossal failure of a season. And so I think this was a step in the right direction, a big step in the right direction for the Vancouver Canucks to make some changes. And I thought Wednesday, when they finally got around to making the announcements, uh, it came across as a pretty progressive day for an organization that uh, is often accused of sort of being stuck in the dark ages of hockey. No question. Yeah. Not a huge surprise, right? When it, when it comes to the coaching staff, I think you do have a lot of progressive staffers. Honestly, I don't think the organization is as, um, you know, that, I think that reputation as being in the dark ages might be 
a little bit unfair. You know, you think about the analytics team that they've built, which John Wall oversees, and John Wall super embedded with hockey operations, uh, while Aiden Fox, uh, who's one of the video coordinators, is super embedded with Travis Green and the coaching staff. Um, and Ryan Beach is super embedded with the amateur scouting staff. Um, you know, you throw in Chris Gear, uh, the way that Jim delegates himself. Uh, you know, I think you've got. I, I don't think you've got a throwback sort of structure in terms of a you know re- resistance to new ways of thinking about hockey. I think the the problems are sort of elsewhere. If that makes sense. <laughs> um, in terms of the coaching staff, though, without question, Green's super progressive. He made these decisions, even though I you know, know that management had floated that perhaps some new voices and new perspectives were important and not just after last season sort of went off the rails, but because the coaching staff, you know, had been the same three guys on the bench for four years running now. Right. And at some point I think there's an understanding that, you know, a a bit of a change up is well worth doing. Uh, Enter Brad Shaw, Shaw, you know, Shaw, hearing Shaw talk, it makes a ton of sense that he would have ultimately been Green's pick, eh? Just in terms of his obsessiveness, his uh, attention to detail, the way he's data-driven, you know, you can understand how Green would see him as someone who sees the game similarly but differently. And in Kyle Gustafson, you've got a guy who Green views as being like a very sharp systems analyst, uh, I think a lot of his portfolio is going to be based off of that, uh, you know, from my conversation with Travis anyway this week. And, you know, then Jason King gets a promotion. I think that's an interesting one. Uh, King was not like when King was promoted from the Utica Comets bench and joined the Canucks as an eye in the sky assistant last season, it was viewed as a cost saving maneuver by the organization. Right. And yeah. Fair enough, considering everything else that was going on. But even if the Canucks had had full resources to do a full search and on and on, like I think King would have had a real inside track to that job. Um, you know, and I believe I said so on a vancast at the time. Like Jason's very much highly regarded by the organization and by Travis Green, so he's going to get a shot to run the power play. And, and one thing I wonder about is. You know, does that mean that when you have those power play meetings, when you meet with the small group of key offensive players, um, you know, in the past, Newell, who, you know, I know I know some fans, fans, fans <laughs> deride the drop pass, uh, which every team uses, by the way. And they also and they also say things like too slow to adapt, you know, like too slow to adapt with. Jimmy VC in the bumper spot and Matthew Highmore on the second pair. And it's like, yeah, don't know if the the slow to adapt thing is a problem here. Um, Too slow to adapt with Tanner Pearson at the net front of PP1. They should be a top 10 power play. Like what, what are you talking about? Anyway, um, one thing I do wonder is Newell Newell would have handled those for sure by himself. Like Newell is one of the most respected power play coaches you'll find in this industry. Uh, Will Travis supervise the power play and the coaching of some of those key offensive players a little bit more closely with a first year assistant handling that portfolio. I'd imagine you might. And I wonder if there's a sense that perhaps some of those top offensive players needed to be held more accountable like needed to maybe have more, more touch points with the head coach. Um, and that that might've been a reason that they structured things this way 
to some extent. Um, you know, I, I don't know that, but I'd certainly wonder about it as I think through, you know, how this coaching staff will actually function day to day. Uh, so that, those are sort of my, that's my sort of quick overview there, J-Pat, in addition to obviously Clark being back, an important one. And of course, he got a promotion as well and a huge title. And as he told the 650 guys today, this morning, almost as we record, was on with Bruff and said, and this is according to Taj, because I didn't have time to listen to it, preparing to chat with you. Um, but he was asked specifically if there was a time where he wondered if he would be back with the Canucks. And Clark agreed. Yeah, I would certainly say that. Um, you know, the, the a lot of this reporting, a lot of the things, the deadline, all of that stuff, like that was true. The organization blew by his deadline. They believed, however, and they told him all along, they'd given him assurances that they would come hard for him at some point. Uh, Clark had told them he, his preference was to be here. But in terms of going past that deadline, in terms of, restarting negotiations after Travis got his deal done and sort of not being entirely certain that Clark would even be open to those conversations because of that deadline that they had blown by. Um, you know, like that, that all, that all is true. That all did happen. Ultimately this story has a happy ending. The process, however, was risky for sure, without question. And then, you know, the club did take their chances there. Fundamentally, though, they've brought back, uh, and I think you're right, you framed it right. Like, this is a progressive arrangement with Clark. He's got a lot of authority uh, to pick goaltenders, both in the draft and on the professional side. Um, he works, obviously, closely with the coaching staff, too. This is a big portfolio. He's got a deal and five years of term that reflect that portfolio. Uh, a pretty fascinating situation and, and clearly a, an exceptionally talented guy for the Canucks to have in their organization and to have kept. And, you know, it's funny, you talk about touch points and, and the power play, and Travis was on 650 on Thursday afternoon, and and one of the questions straight up was, you know, how does that power play get better? And he said the players have to be better. And so, you know, like there is an element of that, that, you know, you can talk about the systems and the schemes that they draw up, but ultimately execution comes down to the guys on the ice. And so Travis putting it right back on the players here in the offseason. And and I think, too, Tom, that there are still some, uh, even in 2021, that think of like coaching staffs at the highest level of hockey as totally compartmentalized, right? Like Nolan Baumgartner handles the defense as if Nolan Baumgartner, if he saw something with the forward group, you know, isn't allowed to speak up, isn't allowed to have input. Like, you know, Newell Brown handled the power play as if Newell Brown didn't do anything. Like these guys are all on the ice together at practice. Uh, you know, practice plans are all done in advance. Uh, it's totally collaborative. The amount of film work that these coaches do, you know, reviewing their own game and then there are coaches that are doing the pre-scout and laying out game plans and going over video with the players. Like, you understand why there are so many coaches on a staff because uh, there's a hell of a lot of work to be done. But, uh, I mean, it's all in collaboration. Like, it, it just, it is. And there may have been a point in time where guys were responsible for one thing and one thing only, but those days are, are long gone. And so, uh, you know, with Brad Shaw and... Again, I would direct people if they didn't have a chance to hear him uh, on the radio the other day. A fascinating interview. And 
you know, I liked his line where he said, I'm an associate coach without the title. Like, he's right. been an associate coach uh, in St. Louis. He was hired as an assistant and then promoted, uh, worked under Ken Hitchcock, worked, worked under Andy Murray, worked uh, with Torts, obviously, in Columbus. Uh, this is a guy that has a, a wealth of experience. Uh, and, we he's have, worked for, and he's worked for Hitchcock and Torts. He got a thick yeah. skin, I'd imagine. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but this is a guy that basically said, like, I'm coming in to be a set of engineers, you know, for all aspects of this hockey club. And so ultimately, you know, whether he's the guy that's positioned right beside Travis on the bench or if, you know, like, I don't think those types of things matter. Like, this is a guy that has, as we've said, this great history working with young defensemen. Like, I'm sure he'll have time to work with Quinn Hughes and Jack Rathbone and Ole Ulevi. And, you know, even if his job isn't just a defensive guy, uh, I'm sure he'll take that on as part of his portfolio. You know, he's a great sounding board for a guy like Nolan Baumgartner. Uh, look, Baumgartner has been in the NHL four years as a coach. He was there as a player, obviously. But, you know, his coaching chops go back to Utica with Travis. Like, he's not inexperienced. But at the same time, like, I, I have to believe that you can still get better whatever your job is. You know, we can get better as podcasters. They can get better as coaches. And so I would think this is a great resource for a guy like Nolan Baumgartner to now have the opportunity to work hand in hand with a guy who is seen as sort of this defenseman whisperer in Brad Shaw. So I like the hiring of Shaw. We've talked about him when his name was, was floated out there. Uh, Kyle Gustafson is really interesting to me. Like, I'm all for guys getting opportunities, and to hear Travis talk about him, uh, you know, raves about the fact that even though he's been in the Western Hockey League almost two decades, said that he studied the NHL a ton, and as Travis has progressed through the ranks, you know, they've kept in close contact from their time in Portland, and they spent a lot of time talking about the NHL. So this is a guy that clearly has paid close attention to the league that he's now going to get to work in, and so you've got a veteran guy who's you know, tried and true and been there in Bradshaw, but you're bringing in a, a fresh voice with some fresh ideas. And that's where I said, like, you know, I, I think it was a, a good day for the Vancouver Canucks. The one thing that I, I wonder, and you pointed out, in fact, you were the first to do it in your piece at The Athletic about Ian Clark was like, they gave him this title. Like, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you pump that out in the press release and let people know, like, you're expanding his duties and you are sort of branching out? And, and when I said, like, you know, it's a good day for the Canucks, like, there are still people that knock this organization for not moving in the right direction. This seemed like a step in the right direction. Why wouldn't you want the world to know that not only have you retained Ian Clark, but you have expanded his role within the hockey club. It just seemed crazy that that wasn't part of the press release. Well, it, it, I'm surprised that it wasn't. Uh, I had a lot of questions after the press release. <laughs> or personally, though, right? Like, I, I read the press release and I wrote down seven questions. Like, I had seven questions right off the bat. Um, you know, I, I don't know if anyone else did, but, like... I, I was curious as to things like Green's connection to Bradshaw. Um, what is Gustafson's precise role and does his portfolio include skills coach, right? Since Glenn Carnegie and Chris Higgins, who's moving back to a, uh, you know, player development role, which he, you know, I, I think, I mean, he was really busy working with those players, you know, guys like Jack Rathbone prior to the season. Uh, makes sense as the world returns to normal that you're going to need two bodies on the road in, in player development. So, um, you know, that, that made a ton of sense to me. 
But uh, but who is, does the club not have a skills coach anymore? Like that was one of my questions. Who's on the bench? Who's running the power play? Um, trying to understand about Newell. Um, you know, I, I had a ton of questions in the wake of that. And but but you know what? Uh, what I will say on Clark's promotion is it's not like it was a secret. Like when I started making my calls, it came up multiple times. Um, but yeah, I don't know why it was in the press release. It, it seems like something you would probably want to formalize. Um, but you know, functionally for the Canucks, Clark has also done these duties for a while. And right. yep. while, while he is getting this director of goaltending title, it's not like they're bringing in, you know, a ton of people under him. Like when Dan Cloutier was director of goaltending, they brought in Clark as goalie coach under him. Right. Um, that's not happening now. So maybe there was a sense that if they announced that it would look incomplete, it would suggest that there's another shoe to drop. And that's not what's up. What's up, what's up is that they're just formalizing, you know, Clark's responsibilities, which he's held down for a while now. So, yeah, no, uh, an interesting day. I, I want to come back to Newell really quickly. And this is not, you know, anything because this does not reflect how I feel about Newell personally or anything. This just reflects on my view of Newell's coaching, right? And, and when you look at what he accomplished his first time around in Vancouver – uh, up until the season when Kessler got injured and the Canucks power play shot rate went off a cliff because they had no right-handed sh- shooters. Uh, and then look what he accomplished in Arizona where he had no real offensive threat. Like Ekman Larson was just breaking into the league and he'd do weird things like rotating Redeem Verbata back to the point. Um, you know, guys like the Sedin Twins, guys like Redeem Verbata, the, the smartest NHL point producers I've met. Um, they think the world of this guy and you know, that's something that I weigh really heavily in, in evaluating people. And then I look at the Canucks' track record, uh, this time around in his second tour of duty. And, you know, I see a guy who managed on aggregate, like people look at 17, then 20 plus then 17, then 20 plus and say like, Oh, you know, this wasn't consistent enough, but it's like, you had the twins retiring, right? You've had Quinn Hughes for two years of his tenure. Um, you know, Pedersen broke into the league and was exceptionally dynamic. Like that gave the Canucks an elite weapon. Uh, but, you know, they've integrated a ton of new guys. There's not multiple elite pieces on this Canucks power play, right? There's there's Quinn Hughes and, and Pedersen, and he was injured for the second half of last season. Um and still, like when the Canucks, when you look and say, see that the Canucks were above average by conversion rate, 10th in the NHL in power play goals scored, and tied for ninth with the Washington Capitals in goal differential. Like the Washington Capitals, that's the best power play team in the league. And the Canucks, with the talent that they've had the last four years, match them shot for shot by goal differential on the power play. Like that's a hell of a job done. You know, that's a that's that's good work. Um, I think the fresh ideas thing makes sense, but the idea that the idea that Newell's not like the Bradshaw of the power play, you know what I mean? Like everyone's excited for what Bradshaw can do defensively for this club, like for sure. But the Canucks just lost a coach of that caliber to run the power play, and that needs to be noted here. Like that is not an insignificant or in, or, or unsubstantial loss. And I'm not criticizing the organization for make the, making the decision. I think the logic of needing fresh voices holds water and makes complete sense to me. Um, but, you know, make no mistake, like the, the criticism that Brown takes that's based off of things like 
if you have Hughes and Pedersen, you should be top 10. And it's like, guys, 21-year-old defensemen don't come into the league as elite power play threats. Like, there's a lot to learn. Pedersen kind of did. But even Pedersen, like, how how many assists did he have last year, right? Like, Pedersen also, you know, as he grows up in this league, will diversify his, you know, arsenal on the power play with the man advantage. Like there, that's a process. He's going to be better at 25 than he is right now. Uh, so will Hughes. Uh, but they've made a hell of a start. And and to some extent, that should be credited to Brown. Uh, the idea that he's had this overwhelming personnel to, to achieve the results he has doesn't hold water for me. Uh, the adaptability thing, the drop pass hatred is all literally bullshit. Um, the Canucks lost a good one. And that, and that should be noted. Yeah, and look, they were fourth best in the NHL, uh, not this past season, but the one before. Um, and we'll always have that night of the five power play goals in Nashville. Uh, they scored four in a game in Los Angeles. I think they scored three on a couple of occasions as well. That power play was an absolute game changer uh, in Quinn Hughes' rookie season once he took the controls. But yeah, there were some reasons for regression this year, but I still think component parts are there. Like if Jason King is in fact going to be the new architect of the power play, but I, I do think that he'll work in concert with Travis. Like, man, he inherits some really nice pieces. And, he does. Uh, and, and it should be pointed out that six of Jason King's 12 NHL career goals came on the power play. Now, right. <laughs> they were power play goals uh, with the twins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. No, no. Um, but, well, and here's the other one. Here's the other one we get a lot of now, too, is uh, put Besser put Besser at that left circle, right? Put Besser at that left circle where he's a one-time threat. But if you do that, then you're moving Miller, right? And what made the Canucks power play lethal last year, especially after the acquisition of Toffoli, was that by putting Miller on his downhill side, and having Horvat at the bumper, Hughes up top, and Pedersen on the far uh, at the far the right um, half wall, you have three one-time threats, right? If you put Besser there, then you're reorienting, like you're making Hughes your primary playmaker, and you're running things off the top, which is just a less efficient place to be running things off than the half wall. It makes things tougher for Bo Horvat because, like, who's probably the highest percentage finisher and certainly in the most dangerous area of the ice because he's getting a pass from the goal line from a lefty as opposed to a righty, right? Like that to Foley to Bo Horvat, like feast goal that they leaned on so heavily against the blues and in the playoffs. Like that's, that's not there in that alignment. Uh, plus you don't have the lefty passer to give a quick crossing pass to Pedersen for the one timer. Like your options are way limited uh, especially because, you know, Brock hasn't QB'd a power play, really, to this point in his career, although his playmaking's improved enough that I guess I have time to see it. Um, but, you know, it's it's not as easy as just, like, put your right-handed shooter who doesn't score a ton of one-time goals in that spot, duh. It's like, no, that's not a no-brainer. What are you talking about? Ridiculous. Anyway, I'm, I'm done. I, I'll end my rant here, but Newell Brown deserves more respect in this marketplace. Well, and just to pick up on that, though, what I liked two years ago when they had all that success was that anytime they hit a snag, like they didn't wait and they would flip the guys. Like they would put Brock on his downhill side and yeah. move Pedersen to the other side. And it just opens up options. Like Elias Pedersen is way too talented to be used as a decoy standing waiting for his one timer. Now, 
he hit a bunch of posts. And if those go in, his numbers, the team's power play numbers, they all look better. I, I, I've got lots of time for his one-timer. It's still probably the most, most, most lethal weapon that they've got. But there are going to be times when we've seen teams sort of cheat that way and try and take it away and force the Canucks to beat them on the other half of the ice. But you know, then move Pedersen over there on occasion and keep defenses on their toes. And then you get Brock Besser on his downhill side and, you know, he can shoot from there. And and uh, I just want to see them get Pedersen a little bit more involved. He only had the one power play assist in the 26 games he played. That's not enough. He had 16 assists the year before on the power play. He's got to be involved as a playmaker uh, as well as a shooter. And I just think that, you know, it can be like football almost. Like you could have a playbook where, you know, you basically are you look showing defenses different looks and and uh, I think that there has to be a little bit more creativity but I'm with Travis I mean ultimately when the puck is on the ice it's on the players uh, to figure things out and there just has to be a little bit better execution and obviously the second unit was a complete disaster they got to kind of rebuild that we'll see what kind of personnel they have with a second unit uh, to start next season uh, one other thing on the coaching this week that I really liked was Hearing from Brad Shaw, but also hearing from Ian Clark. He did Sakaris and Price. He's done Halford and Bruff now. Like under Travis Green, we haven't heard, the, the public hasn't heard from the assistants very much, right? Like Travis controls the message as the head coach, the buck stops with him. And it's off season, so I get that. But I just thought it was really refreshing. And quite honestly, like you've been out on the road, I've been out on the road. Uh, things haven't gone that well for the Vancouver Canucks the last bunch of seasons. You know, you could tell at times when the pressure was mounting on Travis and uh, he wasn't having a whole lot of fun uh, with the back and forth with the media. Like, I think he's handled the media really well in four years. I think he's handled the market. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's really been a challenge for him. But within four tough seasons, I think there have been lots of moments, and I can think of a few where he and I have had some exchanges. Like, I think it would benefit him to say, you know what, today I'm going to send... Baumgartner out, or now you got Brad Shaw with all this experience. A day here or a day there after a practice, like I think it would benefit Travis just to step back and not have to be there every single day and twice on game days. I don't know if it'll ever get to that with him or if he just thinks that that is part of his job description as an NHL head coach in a Canadian market, but I really enjoyed hearing these different voices and from these other people within the organization this week. It's something that doesn't happen much once we get into the season. Yeah, I think, I mean, my view of it is, my view of it is, and this is like old PR guy, you just, you, you want a disciplined message as much as possible. And, you know, the way I always thought about it was the, that we would make assistance available um, but if like my, my, my sort of rule with the Panthers was I'd, I'd make assistance available, but we'd have a conversation and that, and by that, I mean with my team, right? Like if someone asked one of our PR coordinators or uh, my PR director, Hey, I'd like to talk to, you know, ex assistant coach, Jack Capuano, for example, um, yeah. you know, we could do that, but I wanted to know about it. Like I wanted to understand and I wanted to make sure that, you know, our, our, our head coach knew or whatever, like if anyone cared, I'd want them to know. Sometimes people cared. Sometimes people didn't. Now, one day we did bring Jack Capuano out to do the post-game media availability, but that was for his first game against the Islanders. And that was just a mess with the New York pool. Uh, <laughs> and they loved it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's times where it makes sense to do and times where it's funny to do. Um, but you know, that was sort of always my 
my principle of it when I managed a club's messaging is I, I just wanted few voices. Like I didn't want to hear from a million people generally, uh, unless it was targeted, unless there was a point to it, unless it was a one-on-one, unless it was, you know, uh, an assistant who's got a close relationship with X guy or has done specific work with X guy or is discussing the power play in particular. Um, you know, I, I wanted to keep it pretty narrow. So that was my, that was my approach always. And, uh, you know, I think it makes sense. Like, I think it makes sense, especially in this hockey market, to have a pretty centralized uh, group that you hear from. But also last season, so much of the burden to discuss so much of what happened around the club fell on Travis exclusively, right? To the point where he was discussing things that really should have been above him, above yeah. his pay grade, especially considering his contract status. That's where, yeah, I mean, he could use some days off <laughs> from a media rep's perspective. <laughs> um, more, more for me than, um, you know, th- throwing some questions about the defense to Bradshaw or Nolan Baumgartner. Though, look, any day, any day we get off from Travis uh, and handling our questions, like, I'll take that, right? Like, I don't want yeah. to push back too much. That sounds great. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, so we are through two rounds of the playoffs now. Thrilling stuff, by the Four way. Four teams still to go. And as some pointed out on Twitter last night, and it is kind of incredible, let's be honest, that the Vancouver Canucks pushed Vegas to seven in the second round last year, where Colorado could only get to a six-game <laughs> series against the Golden Knights. Playoff hockey could be screwy at times. I think that's a pretty good example. Uh, yes, the Canucks in Colorado both advanced past St. Louis and then ran into Vegas, and somehow the Canucks got a little further. Uh, I say somehow. I think we all know how. Uh, his name was Thatcher Nemco. Whatever the case, I, I was all aboard the Colorado train. Uh, there have to be some sour people in Denver. Uh, there certainly was one on the podium last night and Nathan McKinnon. And give Vegas a ton of credit. Like, they were down 2 nothing in this series. Uh, oh, certainly the first game. Was the, Nathan McKinnon sour at the questions? Or the, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Nathan wow, McKinnon's he, the most competitive guy in hockey. But, man, that, that was a doozy. <laughs> yeah, but, but even before then, he dropped the answer about, like, nine years in this league and having one shit. Uh, which is a great <laughs> answer. Like, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um, what a boss. But... But, you know, and, and I'm not surprised that the first game in that series went the way it did with Vegas having come off a seven-game win against Minnesota and having to travel, and Colorado was laying in wait. But really, since that point, like, man, like Vegas just cranked it up, and there were times in that series where Colorado uh, either couldn't or wouldn't match what Vegas was putting on the ice. And, I mean, we've seen it now four years in this league. Uh, not easy to win in Vegas. That was the case again last night for the Colorado Avalanche, so... Uh, Vegas, Montreal, a two anthem series. Uh, help me out here. You were in the bubble in Edmonton last year. Like, 
were they were there two anthems before the Stanley Cup final? Even though Ooh, there were two American, I don't teams? remember. I don't remember. I think there like, I was trying to think. Was. I, well, because I was trying to think if Vancouver Vegas was the last two anthem game, but I would I would imagine that they. I think they did play the Canadian anthem anyway. Yeah. yeah, and like occasionally they'd have like Jason Kenny speak. Like <laughs> all the rules were <laughs> off in the bubble. Um, yeah, no, the uh, yeah, two anthem series, fantastic. Does Montreal not feel like a team that can execute the Vancouver game plan against Vegas and maybe even do it better than Vancouver did? Yeah, I mean, I think there's similarities there. What I'll say about Montreal and their success this year, and we've all seen it now through Toronto and Winnipeg, you know, one thing that they have done incredibly well, Tom, is they get the lead. Like, Carey Price, you know, puts up the wall until Montreal scores. I think they've scored first in nine of their 11 games and are 8-1. and one. And when Montre- Montreal is one of those teams, and look, the Canucks were sort of that way too this year. Like, the first goal, if they got it, they were in the game. If they didn't get it, they were in all kinds of trouble, even though it was just a one nothing deficit. That's my concern for Montreal. Yeah. If Montreal falls behind Vegas, oh, yeah. look out. Yeah, they're but, but if Montreal gets a lead on Vegas, Vegas has to look out because they're good, we've seen. They're good 5-1-5 five five defensively. Like, they can... And they have enough speed to counterattack. Like they have enough speed to be lethal counterpunchers. And look, I, I'm just saying, I don't think this is going to be. I, I, I've said all along, like I didn't think. I thought that Toronto could skate with, um, you know, some of the best teams in the in the league. I thought that Edmonton could have maybe, depending on their matchup, uh, given one of those teams a series. Obviously, that is a take that hasn't aged well, but it was my take, so I'm, I'm going to stick with it. Uh, despite Edmonton looking feeble in their sweep to a Winnipeg Jets team that looked completely overmatched <laughs> against the Montreal Canadiens. Um, but, you know, I, I thought I thought a lot of the, the North Division is awful. Takes were um, off. Like, I just thought those were off this year. I, did, I didn't buy them. And now I'm thinking, like, look, I'm not going to pick Montreal. I think Vegas takes it in you know, six, probably five or six, but I do think, I don't think this is going to be an easy series for them. Like I think Montreal's built well to mess with them anyway, or at least give them a tough time. Um, Colorado, Carolina, Tampa Bay, Vegas, right? Those were the four best teams for me in the NHL this year with Toronto. Um, The two that advance have the best goaltending, right? Like if you want, if you want a big picture takeaway for the Canucks, the Vegas Golden Knights defeating the Colorado Avalanche on the in the wake of the Ian Clark extension, like that's a good that's a good takeaway for the Canucks. Goaltending, goaltending is everything in the playoffs. Proved again with Vasilevsky, you know, leading a Tampa Bay team that honestly was not as good five on five as Carolina was in that series. Like Carolina outplayed them five on five. Didn't matter. Vasilevsky incredible. Right. Uh, I think that when you look at that game and when you look at some of those Nachushka chances and um, you know, like Colorado easily should have won one of game five or six, if not for Mark Andre Fleury being absolutely incredible and racking up, you know, those moments that haunt teams like as he went um, just a tremendous performance from him. A great story for Vegas. I think that was the biggest reason why the Avs were not able to force a series of the same length that Vancouver was in the bubble last year. 
No, I think that's absolutely. Grubauer was not up to the standard that Marc-Andre Fleury was. And, and that included Fleury with the whiff on the Brandon Sod goal in game five. And from there, you know, just shut it down. Absolutely. Like, you know, a two nothing lead at home going to the third period for Colorado. They, they had to get that thing done and, and didn't. And now their season is over. Hey, you were among the very few in the bubble last summer and we pounded out a ton of podcasts. Then we covered off everything that was happening. Like, I have zero recollection. In fact, I kind of had to read it twice when I saw that the Eastern Final, or it's not the Eastern Final, even though they're giving out the trophies now, but uh, the Islanders in Tampa is a rematch of last yeah. year's Eastern Final. Like, I have no... I remember that what well. do you What do you remember about that series? I, the, like, I know... The thing I remember best was I was... What I remember best was, like, at that point, especially as those series, the conference final series got late, I was, like, beginning to count down the days, like, beginning to chisel the days and, like, you know, one, one, one slash on, on, my, on my walls. And it was the fifth game of that series. So the way that it worked is, like, the Vegas series ended in five, Vegas-Dallas, right? And the Islanders were playing their fifth game against Tampa Bay. And Tampa Bay was leading late. And it was like, if that ended, I knew that the latest I would leave would be, you know what I mean? Like, I was like looking at it from a perspective of my travel, right? Like, I was just like, get me home. Just get me home. I really want to get home. Your your parole date. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) New York comes back late against um, Tampa in game five. Multiple overtime games just to rub the salt in. And then Jordan Everly wins it in game five. And it was just like heartbreaking. Like I've never been that upset <laughs> about a goal in hockey. Honestly, I've never, J-Pad, I can't, I was just like, oh no. Um, that was like one of my low moments of last summer, to be totally honest with you. So that's probably what I remember best from that series. But uh, Tampa Bay overwhelmed the Islanders last time out. And I think they'll do it again. I do. I, I just think that Tampa Bay t- team is such a buzzsaw. But but if New York can contain their power play, it can be a series, right? Like that's where, what it's going to come down to is can you play disciplined enough? Barry Trotz teams usually can uh, to avoid giving, you know, Tampa Bay freebies five on four. And if you can, then, you know, there's there's an awful lot. You can give them a tough time. But, but also I'm thinking about it last year and it was like Braden Point missed some of those games um, you know, like the, the lightning didn't have their full sort of arsenal. Victor Hedman was starting to slow down a little bit as that series went along after being easily the best player in the world through the first two rounds. Um, Tampa still overwhelmed them. Like they still overwhelmed them without Braden point without Steven Stamkos. Uh, I just, yeah, I mean, for me, for me, Tampa Bay can hit a completely different gear than the New York Islanders can even though the New York Islanders have a lot of pieces I really like, including my absolute guy, Adam Pellick, who's like one of my favorite. I think he's the smartest defensive defenseman in hockey. Like his two-way IQ is absolutely through the roof. Um, I like a lot of what the Islanders are doing. I just don't believe that they can really hang with the Lightning. For me, that series is, um, you know, that series is not going to be as, uh, I almost think, I know Montreal is seen as, sort of the, the also ran of the four finalists, but I think Montreal can give Vegas a tougher time than the Islanders can the lightning. Although I have picked against the Islanders in both of their series so far and been wrong. So, you know, maybe this is just a team I don't have a great feel for. Well, just to refresh people. Uh, and again, you were there. Uh, it, it went six games. Everly scored 
to stave off elimination and then Sorelli, I, my research, my reading yes. yesterday, Anthony Sorelli won it. But so game six went to overtime. Like the Islanders didn't go quietly, even if they no. were overwhelmed in the series. And we'll see what they learned, what their takeaways were. I mean, it's a new series, obviously. I, I guess I'm at a point, Tom, where I, I hope that the Islanders can at least get a split in Tampa because uh, I just I, I can't get enough of Nassau County Coliseum right now. And if they can come home with a split, like talk about home ice advantage, Vegas certainly has it with their crowd in that building at T-Mobile, but you know on the island as well. Like they're just going nuts right now, and so it's fun to watch. And we'll see what a home ice could do for the Islanders, who, by the way, and people dump on the Islanders for you know a Barry Trot system team and all of that, and and certainly there is an element of that to the way that they play, but you know Barzil, uh, Everly. Uh, Brock Nelson, Bavillier, uh, Kyle Palmieri's having a, a really nice season and postseason as well. He leads them with seven goals. J.G. Paggio leads the Islanders in scoring through two rounds. Yeah, I love J.G. Paggio, man. Got 13 points in the so 11 games that they've played. So, you know, you look at some of the guys and you think, well, they've got enough offense. And yet the guys that you would think, they don't actually lead that team in scoring. It's been Paggio who... Uh, has found a way to be uh, very productive. And, of course, they've got that fourth line that reminds me a lot of the Boston Bruins 10 years ago. You know, just a fourth line that's played together forever. Uh, you know, veteran guys, opponents and opposing fans hate them. But, you know, they know the role and they play it reasonably well. And uh, we'll see what uh, impact, if any, that fourth line for for the Islanders can have uh, against Tampa. Here's another, here's another takeaway, by the way, from... The Vegas Golden Knights triumphing over the Avalanche. The Golden Knights' ascension, and especially their reinvention, right? Like, this wasn't just a one-and-done elite team. They then grafted onto their roster elite pieces, right? Mark Stone, Max Pacioretty, Alex Petrangelo, all of those guys coming later. Um, Do not underrate the value of cap space, right? Do not underrate the value of coming in with $81.5 million in cap space, as the Seattle Kraken will, Right. There's this thought around the league that the and, and a thought I think among the Canucks internally too, frankly, that the Kraken won't be, you know, Vegas quality in year one, and that's probably true. That's probably right. That's a really high bar. But coming in with 81.5 million in cap space in a flat cap environment is a massive weapon in your chamber. Like I actually think the Kraken are going to have more options to add real elite pieces right off the bat should they choose to do so. Uh, just because of the cap pressure the teams are under. Uh, Vegas, at the same time that they have taken full advantage of unlimited cap space, they also completely disregarded anything resembling responsible cap management this season, right? Like, they often played short. They played like 16 men and... Like, they were just like, whatever, we'll just leg through it. And Tampa Bay, obviously, we know, well above the cap, right? Now, granted, the Avalanche ended up at like a $91 million actual in actual cap spend, too. That's $10 million above the upper limit. So it's not as if the Avs aren't there. But across the board, those three elite teams, like, the way that it worked for them, they were well above the cap. They were all legging it through. It was complicated. Like, that's something we should probably get used to. And, you know, things like... When you're an elite team, things like, hey, we can't get Ole Olevi in the lineup because of cap space, like, that's just day-to-day. That's day-to-day, and that's totally fine. I get why the market gets frustrated about it in Vancouver, but 
that's completely fine if you're a team like Vegas. But it would be a story here, right? Like if Vancouver ever, even if they were really good, played a game 16 men, there sure, would be criticism, right? Um, yeah. a, a good reminder from these teams that like cap space matters. It's super valuable. Vegas especially has shown us how valuable flexibility is. But also, in season, if it looks a little ugly, doesn't really matter if you're an elite team. And, and, you, and teams should be cut some slack, some slack on that. Last, last point on this, though. Vegas also fundamentally redesigns their roster in part because their players, their expensive players, even a guy like Nate Schmidt, like they are desirable to other teams, right? They have value. They can send them on. Where Vancouver has gotten themselves into problems and the reason they haven't been able to reallocate cap spaces, it's not the money in term, although that's part of it. In fact, that's a big part of it. It's that no one wants these players, right? Like it's not it, – the problem isn't Louis Erickson at 6'6", six, six, although it is. The real problem is that no one wants that. No one wants that, right? There's no market for Jay Beagle or, or Antoine Roussel, probably Braden Holtby this summer, Right. And that makes everything complicated because all of a sudden you have to attach first round picks or second round picks or, you know, there's a lot of pain that comes with moving those guys. Something the Canucks weren't able to do last summer, something I am skeptical they'll be able to do this summer, right? And it's going to significantly harm them in terms of their ability to improve this year. Uh, relative to Seattle's $81.5 million in flex to improve, the Canucks are limited. Their options are limited. Um, now, now, I also see a lot of people talking about the abs in terms of, well, now they have to pay Kale McCarr, right? And then, and they have to pay Grubauer and they have to pay, there's one other guy. Who's the other guy that Landis, has to get paid? Landis, 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 Landis right. Um, so now they have to pay those guys and they won't be as good next year. And there's some truth to that, but here's the other thing, j you know what's almost more valuable, or at least close to as valuable, as having a really, really high-end contributor on an entry-level contract? Having a top-three player in hockey making six and a half, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Nathan McKinnon has two more years at six and a half, and because of that alone, the Avs are going to be a threat, even as Makar becomes an $8 million defender, and as Landis Gug becomes a $9 million forward. Um, they are going to have like that level of efficiency, getting that level, getting... 15 million worth of value out of a $6 million piece, that level of efficiency is going to permit the abs to have two more years to be a really, really loaded team. Their bigger problems that they're going to lose a, a really good player in expansion, but they have 20 million in cap space in like this off season, right? Like they have 20 million to get those deals done. You know, maybe, maybe they have to go a little bit younger on the blue line, but they're also going to get helped because they have so many good players that Seattle's going to take an expansion, right? Like there's going to be a ton of options for the abs to remain a threat. Um, so, you know, don't, don't worry too much about their cap situation. Like they've managed this well. And again, like Vegas, you know, you don't think you don't, you don't think they can move Jonas Donskoy or, you know, Tyson Jost um, or Nazem Kadri for a return tomorrow easily. Like, with one phone call, of course they could. That's fine. That gives them options. What's what's left Vancouver stuck has been the value of their players who take up cap space more than the cap commitment itself. And I think that's a really important thing to remember and, and something that I was like reminded by a little bit watching Vegas play and win last night. Now, right off the hop, you said uh, we got to double back on a couple of things. So, so let's do that as we wrap up this edition of the VanCast, Tom. Uh, one thing that we overlooked, 
because uh, you made the passion play about two weeks ago for Adam Cracknell to be, was he going to be the captain of the yeah, Abbotsford, whatever they are? The captain of the Abbotsford um, HL club, yes. Right, and then Bakersfield, the Oilers affiliate, uh, went and ruined in, yeah. that plan. Yeah. Sorry about that. Well, they didn't just, didn't just step in. They squashed your, <laughs> your grand plan. stomped on it, right. <laughs> but I've got so, a new captain, yeah. That's right. I've, oh, you do? Uh, yeah, I've got All a right. new captain. Um, Brad Hunt. Brad Hunt, Maple oh. Ridge, Maple Ridge, great. Yeah. Brad Hunt uh, from the Valley. Makes a ton of sense. Scored eight goals in the NHL, like, not that long ago. Guy can fire the puck. Fire like, the puck, yeah. Big-time shot. Runs, run, run PP1, right? Uh, eat like comes can come up easily. Like you're happy to have him in the lineup if you have to. Stylistic, good stylistic match for for Jack Rathbone and Quinn Hughes too, right? I mean, you can easily plug him into whatever you're doing or whatever partners those guys are playing with without losing a beat. Um, so Brad Hunt, Brad Hunt is my new pick for for inaugural captain of the Abbotsford AHL expansion franchise. Get it done. All right, so they don't have a team name, they don't have uniforms, but you're already putting the C on. <laughs> Brad Hunt's gonna, they'll just pin a C on his uh, his T-shirt yeah. when they make the announcement. Sign an expensive. You got to. He's <laughs> gonna be expensive though if you're give, if you're giving him a two year deal. Honestly, it might be a one year deal. So he's gonna be an expensive AHL player, but he's exactly what they need. That's that's the that's the move right there, Brad Hunt. Especially now that Adam Cracknell's off the board. <laughs> right. He's he's, he's Plan B toward the C. Brad Shaw, Brad Hunt. Just bring in all the Brads. Yeah, Brads. Marshawn. Brad's all Marshawn day. this well, summer. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not that last one. Although although he was on my heart ballot. <laughs> I, felt, I felt a little weird about it. Um, all right. And then Christy. Christy asked me yes. how a Canucks Army blogger um, became VP of, for the Florida Panthers. The key is, is Canucks Army blogger means a lot of things, <laughs> but it, but it's a dismissive framing for what I actually did. Right. Like I, I, I had a background in marketing and communications prior to starting to write about hockey. Then I started to write about hockey and my communications firm folded. So I went and did a bunch of things, but I ended up working for the score when they launched their first ever mobile first newsroom, um, a really unique experience. So I went and worked for an app, uh, while freelancing for places like the Sporting News and I, I Vice and um, on and on across the board. I then went to Sportsnet and also managed the Nation Network. And that's the crucial distinction. Like, Canucks Army was part of the Nation Network, but I was managing a, you know, 60-employee, nine-site company um, that included things like hockey fights and daily face-off and was running acquisitions and on and on. So, um, you know, I had that sort of portfolio while continuing to work for Sportsnet and doing television. Um, that was sort of the key reason why I think I was able to be considered ultimately, although, you know, I don't think I was plan A, B, C, like I wasn't Brad Hunt plan B, I was plan <laughs> F. Um, but you know, it was that experience. It was the fact that I'd functioned, um, doing things like advertorial content sales, doing, you know, acquisitions, partnerships, um, you know, managing uh, a partnership with Advice, for example, a super lucrative, you know, ad sharing deal that we cut with Vice when I had relationships in both places uh, and on and on down the list. So, um, you know, it was my digital business acumen that I think fundamentally was what was considered, not my work 
producing content. And, and so that's why I think I was able to get in there. And that's an important part of this business to remember is that it's, you know, not always what you see, like what you see sometimes is the takes, but, but sometimes there's some elbow grease behind them, some know-how and some business savvy behind them. Um, and, and in my case, I think that's what was a separator and, and had me considered for the type of role that I ended up holding down and really enjoying for three years in Florida prior to returning to Vancouver, uh, a decision that I'm very happy with, by the way. Uh, and that I've really, and I've really enjoyed being back in this market and talking hockey with everybody, even when, you know, people, um, are dunking on Vancouver media for getting the Ian Clark story wrong. Cause there was nothing to see there. J Pat, nothing to see there. <laughs> Yeah, and apparently uh, Travis Green working through the final year of his contract was not a story. You got, a, not a story. You got an extension. It's you got an extension, story. Tom. It's not a yeah, story, you got me, that. It all worked out in the end, players, so it couldn't have ever. Players always stump for their coaches like that and describe them as desperate, <laughs> and then their moms <laughs> chime in on Twitter like that's totally normal. Total nothing to see here. What classic negative media. So there you go. Uh, so much more than just a Canucks army writer <laughs> blogger. Blogger. blogger yes yeah. and and look for people that don't you're a hustler too like you're a guy that you're an ideas guy you've got lots of things going um you know we've worked for a while now together i've always been impressed with hustle so uh that's how a guy goes from uh one career to another and then we're happy that uh you made the jump back here and uh have been crushing it in this market uh, in print and on the pod thanks, as and, well and thanks for the question christy sorry for sorry for dunking on you i appreciate the follow-up message <laughs> All in good fun, I think. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I think. <laughs> hey, uh, Nashville Predators goalie Pekka Rinne is going to join Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun next week on the two-man advantage edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. Uh, we say Nashville Predators goalie Pekka Rinne. We'll see if uh, that's the case moving forward. He sort of did the farewell lap late in the season in one of the home games there. Uh, his career may be done, but uh, fascinating personality and a, a guy that's... Uh, uh, seen an awful lot uh, during a long, long and successful tenure with the Nashville Predators. So he'll be on the two-man advantage edition of the Athletic Hockey Show next week. Uh, we always finish by telling you to check out our comments section for each podcast episode. We love the feedback, so drop us a line at the Athletic app. Write and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. If you're not already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash VanCast and receive a subscription for just $3.99 per month. Uh, have yourself a great weekend, everybody. That's going to do it for this episode of the VanCast Rancer. Good stuff. As always, uh, we'll be back. Good stuff by you, with... Yeah, we'll be back with uh, new episodes of the VanCast for you next week here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com. <laughs>